This reading is from Brian Doyle. It's called Some Sort of Prayer. He was the former editor of Portland Magazine who died this past year too young, too early, and with so much left to write. I gave a rambling talk recently and a long line of teenagers came up to speak to me afterward and it was instantly clear that every single one of them wanted to ask me something while ostensibly asking me something else, or say one thing while seeming to say something else. I was so instantly moved, I could hardly stammer any sort of answer. I tried hard to hear what they were not saying aloud, but were saying with remarkable courage. It takes startling courage to be a teenager, you know. There are so many theatrical personas to try, but masks and disguises can get stuck. Or you get trapped behind walls that begin as protective but become prisons. One kid in particular stays with me. He's tall and shy and nervous. He says, how do you deal with rejection? And somehow I instantly get that he does not mean essays and stories and poems and how you handle people saying steadily, bluntly no to your insistent yes. He's asking me about hope and despair and lovers and heartbreaks. He's asking me about the girl or boy he adores who does not love him. He's staring at me. The other kids wait politely. I want to reach up and cup his face in my hands as if he were my son. But you have to be honest with kids. You cannot merely bloviate and issue arrogant pomposity so I tell him you have to learn to be neighborly with no. You are going to see it every day, and you might as well be friendly with the concept. Someone else's no doesn't actually kill your yes. It only means that someone else's yes is still out there waiting. You see where I'm going here? There's more yes than no, is what I'm trying to say. I suppose that's what we mean by faith. Faith's a big word, bigger than any religion. It means yes, where everything sure looks like no as far as you can see. Am I making the slightest sense here, son? I actually call him son. The other kids must have thought I was being avuncular, but for a brief moment, he was indeed my son and yours too. We shook hands and he held only my hands just a bit longer than the usual thing, which I took to be some sort of a prayer. Well, friends, here is our hallelujah world. As we all know, after this last year, such terrible and also beautiful things will happen. Let us keep our hearts tender here in 2018 and keep our eyes soft, soft, because this is what we are about. We know there is no answer but to love one another 
and we bear witness against all the unnecessary destruction. And we gather here in this community, even on the coldest days of the year, to practice learning how to be the person we say we want to be and the person the world is calling us to be. We cannot do everything, but we can do something, and that something is not nothing. So let us forget our perfect offering, these words from Leonard Cohen, who also wrote, of course, hallelujah, there is a crack in everything. That, say with me, is how the light gets in. So for as long as I have been your minister, uh, 15 years now, um, every first or second Sunday in January, you have humored me as I have shared some of the top 10 religious news stories of the previous year. And I stole this practice from my colleague and mentor, Roger Payne, who has since retired from First Parish in Lincoln, where I was the intern. And my first Sunday was the uh, Sunday after 9-11. But I noticed, do you ever notice that how sometimes these recaps, whether it's mine or whether you know, we see the New York Times, whatever, that they're always just, they're always just so depressing. <laughs> <laughs> right? Nestor Ramos, who is a new columnist for The Globe, is just terrific. He says, thanks to the internet, we hear about the world's ugly bits more readily and fully than we ever have. And that's true for me. And also because of the internet, we also miss, I think, some of the stories of hope and light and love and life. Because if it leads, of course, is the tagline, it's going to bleed. That's how it seems to work. So this year, a change, because I couldn't find any bad stories from last year. It was, it was tough. <laughs> so I decided to focus on these top 10 stories of hope from 2017, the Hallelujah Anyhow edition. And even if they don't seem outwardly religious, um, I want us to remember uh, what I tell us all the time. For those of you that, that and there are some of you, um, who tell me, well, we're not really religious, I'm not really religious. That word comes from the Latin religio. I know you know this. And that means to tie together that which has been broken apart. It doesn't mean you've got to believe stuff that the pulpit says. It doesn't mean you have to hate people who don't believe like you do. It means to bring people together. It's ironic, I know, but it's also true. <laughs> so, um, are we ready? because I know the pews are super comfortable. <laughs> and I also want to, uh, I need to credit the Christian Century Magazine, which is just a terrific publication, uh, where I first heard of Brian Doyle that Catherine read beautifully. Um, his, his writing is phenomenal, and this magazine's phenomenal. It's where also you got that list of, um, if, you're, if you're bored during the sermon, by the way, I can't see you, but if you're bored during the sermon, <laughs> you can look at the, uh, at the, there you go, Bill, at the, at the cartoons and the quotes. All right. So number 10. I had such fun with these. Number 10, mothers on the street. Now, as we all know, Chicago has been paralyzed in the face of a spike of gun violence over the past many years, actually. And the leaders have seemed unable to respond, despite good intentions. But this year, some regular folks in the city stepped up, and one of them is Mothers Against Senseless Killing. This is, their this is their title. And they were inspired by the simple idea, this is great, of, that moms who stood on the street corner 
Keeping an eye on things could be a powerful deterrent. I mean, duh, right? <laughs> so the founder, her name is Tamar Manesse, encourages moms to, to get some lawn chairs out, grill some hot dogs, they hang out with their friends, and they organize games in vacant lots. Now, Tamar knows, she says that, that more than their presence is needed. They need investment in education and job creation. But she's convinced that the women's presence on the streets, and here's the best part, they wear pink t-shirts, and the t-shirts stay moms on patrol. <laughs> it has had a ripple effect block after block after block. She says, I just sit on a quarter and hang out with my friends. Anybody can do it. Maybe next, fathers will be with their own t-shirts that say, dad's on duty. But the moral of the story, I think, is that law enforcement cannot hold a candle to moms on a mission. All right, number nine. From refugee to mayor, a great story. Now, who's ever been to Missoula, Montana before? Wow, actually, quite a few of you. Okay, well, I haven't been. But a group called Soft Landing Missoula had a mission to welcome refugees into that community. And refugees, I didn't know this, come to Missoula from all over the world. But when they arrive, they often face considerable hostility from outside the city in particular. And when our button is bigger than your button president announced the number of refugees coming to the US would drop by more than 50,000 people it seemed like the rhetoric of xenophobia in that city was winning, in Montana, in Missoula, and everywhere else. However, last month in December, one refugee, his name was Wilmot Collins, was elected mayor of Helena. Now, Wilmot came to the U.S. in 1994 from Liberia. He campaigned for mayor by going door to door, and he connected with voters on the need for low-income housing and funding for firefighters and ambulance drivers. His message resonated and Wilmot beat the four-term incumbent to become the first black mayor of Helena, now here's a surprise, since 1873, which is, wow, okay. I didn't know that. Number eight, being curious and kind. There's a mom, her name is Celeste Nig, and she's got a six-year-old son, and she describes her son as having a soft and a big heart. She says, it is huge. In fact, the little guy is so sensitive that he skips over the pages of children's books where someone is depicted as getting hurt, which means that all of the Grimm's fairy tales are off the table and... I'm thinking Silverstein's The Giving Tree is kept closed, which if you've, if you've reread that book, it is like a hashtag Me Too incident all on its own. Anyway, her son retreats when he is faced with trouble. And she knows she can't give him a thick, leathery coat for protection. And she's also aware that for him, fear has a way of convincing him that hardness is somehow good. 
I want you to pay attention to that, the way that you feel fear and how we think sometimes that hardness is protection. So she began to tell her son of the good things that shells and walls keep out. All the while reminding him of their new family's motto this year. Three parts. Be curious, be kind, and be helpful. And he got the, uh, the kind part and the helpful part, but he asked, how come, why is curious there? And this is what she told him. She said, because being curious is admitting that you don't know, but also that you want to know. Being curious is that people you don't know are worth knowing and that they have something to teach you. And that learning about them and encouraging new ideas, she told him, does not threaten you, it enriches you. She said, you approach with curiosity the world as a trove of things to take in rather than frantically wall everything else out. That's a good mom. By show of hands, how many wants Christine as your personal life coach parenting you through the day? <laughs> All right, number seven, jobs for returning citizens or universalism in practice. And I just love this story. So a new restaurant opened this year in a suburb outside of Chicago that exclusively employs former prisoners and teaches its workers all sides of the restaurant business. So from accounting to dealing with vendors to dealing with difficult customers, um, and the project calls on professionals in the community to train them. So as many of you know, I hope, we mentor uh, four inmates. Uh, four, am I right, Diane McNamara, if she's here? Four, five? We'll say five, because <laughs> it's always changing, to help as they are in, you know, in prison and earn their college degree to come out on the other side. And so the results of this restaurant have been impressive the recidivism rate of these ex-offenders is close to zero, which compares to the national rate, which is that nearly half of inmates released from prison are back in jail after three years, okay? And the reason is they can't get a job. So the restaurant does not hide what it's doing. It educates everybody in that suburb about the challenges of returning citizens. This is what they call their inmates. They call them returning citizens. It's a lovely phrase, isn't it? And it educated employers about the kinds of support ex-offenders need. Above all, it shows that returning citizens are, when given a chance, extraordinarily motivated to reboot their life. And the best part, I think, of this story is the restaurant's name. Are you ready for it? Felony Franks. I think they have more than hot dogs, but, you know, Chicago. <laughs> All right, number six, genius for others. Another terrific one. So while our president, I think it was just yesterday, tweeted at us that he is a very stable genius, <laughs> I literally, while I read that, I read this story. It starts with the fact that it's not easy to test 
for lead contamination in a home water system. So you have to, what you have to do is, I guess you have to pick up a test kit at a local hardware store and then send it out and wait for the sample to be certified at a lab and then it has to come back, okay? So it takes a while. But all that may change thanks to an inventive 11-year-old girl. Her name is Jintali Ru, who became appalled by the water contamination crisis in Flint, Michigan. So she was worried, she's been worried the tragedy's gonna happen elsewhere. And so what did she do? She went, she didn't get on, you know, play video games, she went right to work. She set up a lab in her bedroom in Colorado, and she experimented for months. Her singular goal was to devise a portable detection device that could identify lead compounds in water. So, and these used carbon nanotubes to detect changes in the flow of electrons. I mean, of course, right? <laughs> and then it used a signal processor with a Bluetooth attachment, and then she created a smartphone app to display the test results. And she presented this to the Discovery Education 3M Young Scientist Challenge, and everybody was so amazed they named her as America's top young scientist. She's in seventh grade. <laughs> what was I doing when I was in seventh grade? <laughs> What's amazing is that, I mean, she's got a big brain, but that she wants to use this big brain to nurture the wild dream of saving lives with a device of her own design. Isn't that cool? All right. We have time for a hallelujah anyhow intermission. Okay, so best travel tale. This year, a Republican and a Democrat from the House took a 1,600-mile road trip together, and they got along. You can watch it on YouTube. <laughs> uh, okay, best travel, best commute. A high school senior in New York City got stuck on a New York City train and missed his graduation. So passengers on that train did one for him. And it's also on YouTube, and it's terrific. You've got to watch it later. And the best discovery. Um, amateur stargazers discovered a new type of aurora this year, and they gave it a name. They named it Steve. <laughs> See the stuff you miss if you just focus on the top news, right? All right, number five, diversity welcomed. Now, Skokie, Illinois, you might remember Skokie, Illinois as a place that the Nazis 40 years ago, more than 40 years ago, had planned a march. And the reason they chose Skokie was because of the large number of Jewish people who lived there. This year, if you go to Skokie, it will, you will see it plastered with signs that say, Skokie welcomes everyone. They're everywhere. And it's started by a nonprofit called Skokie Cares, who created the signs after some residents were yelled at for wearing hijabs and told to go back to their own countries. And the signs are given out at the town hall, at the library, everywhere, at schools. They flank the downtown streets and they are in basically every yard in that city. They call it the public landscaping project. 
It doesn't just give out the signs. It also helps people find volunteer opportunities, and it meets to talk about privilege and power and oppression, the Skokie Cares organization does. But, says one resident, the signs function for me, he says, as visible evidence of hope in a community that despite its remarkable diversity contains so much of the anger that you and I have seen this year in our political rhetoric. He says the theologian Paul Tillich, you gotta love a Skokie, Illinois, who quotes theologian Paul Tillich, who defined a symbol as something that participates in that to which it points. A sign that participates in something to that to which it points. So in this sense, the Skokie welcomes everyone and the hashtag no hate magnets, there's a few left out in the parlor, are a symbol of how we can live well with one another across our differences. And in saying we welcome everyone and in saying no hate, we begin to live out that welcome. We begin to live it out. We show it and then we practice it. So pick one up. Number four, LGBTQ church camp. So on an island in Bay Lake, north of Minneapolis, it's probably as cold there as it is here, this past summer, for the first time, high school students from across the country gathered for a week of summer camp. And it was sponsored by a nonprofit called the Naming Project, which is a camp for these teens and their allies who are looking to have an honest conversation about faith and issues of sexual orientation and gender identity. Now, it was founded by a Lutheran minister, and that is important because five denominations of the Lutheran church consider homosexuality and gender identity to be contrary to skip scripture and a sin. So this minister founded this camp. He invites teenagers to come, roast marshmallows, and deepen their sense of identity as faithful people who are living into their bodies in the way that God designed them, that maybe is in contrast to what the culture tells them they should look like and love like. So they roast marshmallows, they share stories of faith, they have a talent show, they worship, they swim in the lake, they study the Bible. They're just getting to be kids. Are you with me? They just get to be kids. And what's more is at the end of the day, they are told that they reflect God's image. They're affirmed for who they are and how they are in the world. Number three, bridging the divide. Now, after the 2016 election, which we might remember, a woman named Amy Fickholm was hit hard when she realized that the secretary of her son's school voted for Donald Trump because she honestly believed that Hillary Clinton was going to take away her guns. What she thought was a bizarre political claim was for this secretary a completely true statement. But Amy and this secretary never talked about it. And it was hard for her to imagine any kind of place where they could. Does this sound familiar to you in your own life? So since then, Amy has committed to learning about a number of organizations and projects that are trying to foster the kind of conversation that would give Amy and the secretary the chance to meet. So these are these organizations. 
One is high from the other side. It's created by two graduate students here in Boston, and it, it's really great. You sign up on the web, and it arranges phone calls between people from opposite political sides of the spectrum, and it matches you up. Another, the People's Supper, organizes more than 500 bridging opportunities over a meal. Living Room Conversations, another project that connects people through Skype. Another, Listen First, it holds private retreats on democracy and power, trying to reshape political discourse. And last, Barbershop Talk Live uses barbershops to foster in-person conversations. All of these organizations are using the principles developed by the Quaker teacher Parker Palmer and the Center for Courage and Renewal on how to hold a constructive conversation. So Amy reports that this month, I think like next week, there's a People's Supper that is happening in her own community. She has invited the secretary to join her. I, this week, am going to sign up for High from the Other Side. My invitation to you is to remember this or find the copy of the sermon or just remember it now and find a way to commit to one of these practices. What if we had a people's supper here in our church basement to bring together people from different perspectives? I just wonder what would happen if we joined together in that, right? Number two, how are we doing? All right. Assault has consequences. Now, if 2016 taught us that sexual assault allegations are not a deal breaker for American voters, 2017 affirmed the consequences for such behavior are nonetheless growing more serious in other parts of our culture. So one after another, after another, after another, after another, we have seen prominent men who have been publicly accused of assault and harassment as more survivors have bravely stepped forward. And so many of these men have seen their career opportunities just evaporate. One writer, what happened with Kevin Spacey, talks about how that was particularly strong and particularly striking. So Netflix, upon learning about Kevin Spacey, promptly fired the actor from its House of Cards series, which is like its top moneymaker, and it also canceled an upcoming film that was already in post-production. Another movie replaced Spacey in a supporting role a month before its release, long after all the scenes were shot. It's hard to actually imagine such an unequivocal, expensive response from the entertainment industry over the last year. So you might say these decisions are financially motivated, but you know what? So were the previous decisions to look the other way. To trust that a beloved star like Kevin Spacey, we would love him enough to just ignore his sins or even worse, to punish those who reported them. So much work remains, and I'm so grateful to Jessica and Heather for holding a conversation for the women of the church later today, for the men who joined me in December, but it seems to me like something is shifting. And last but not least, I heard this story from NPR StoryCorps 
that was shared on July 31st, and I just want to, I want us to listen to it. It's Friday and time for StoryCorps, and today a story about a woman who was attacked in public and who found support from an unlikely source. In 2015, Asma Jama was out to dinner with her family at an Applebee's in Coon Rapids, Minnesota. Asma, who is Somali-American and Muslim, was wearing a hijab and speaking Swahili when a woman seated nearby demanded she speak English. She then smashed Asma in the face with a beer mug. I could see it from the doctor's face that it was really bad. I had lacerations across my chest, all over my hands, and 17 total stitches. Asma's attacker was convicted of assault and jailed. After the trial, the attacker's sister, Dawn Sayer, contacted Asma online. And at StoryCorps, they met in person for the first time. I want to reach out to you so much. I just wanted to know that you were okay. That was my biggest concern. That was my biggest concern, too. I used to be carefree. I used to go everywhere by myself. I would say hi to strangers. But after what happened to me, I felt like I had to look over my shoulder every time I go outside. I was so sorry you had to go through that. Did you stop talking to her because of what she did to me? I did, yeah. Why can't you forgive her? Because then it's telling Jody that it's okay. And it's not okay. Do you feel like you can't speak Swahili in public anymore? Yes, because I realize I don't belong. I have to prove myself every single day. And it makes me feel like I had to give up a lot of who I was. I'm going to pray that you can eventually become that person you used to be. I will get there. It's going to take me a while. But for you to stand up for somebody you don't know and to say that what she did was unacceptable, that meant the world to me. I will support you in any possible way I can. You know, they say blood sticker in the body and you stand behind your family no matter what. Well, you gotta draw a line somewhere. And you're my line. Thank you. That was Asma Jama with Dawn Sayer. So, that's terrific. I want us in 2018 to discover who we will be the line for. Who will you upstand for in these times? Because I believe when I hear these, when I go through these stories, um, and I hope for you too, but when I have the privilege of sifting through them, what happens in me is instead of discouragement, which is basically a word that means to lose your courage, what I feel is I rediscover my power to make a change in the world and in you and in me. Who will you be the line for in the world that is waiting here in 2018? The more we discover that and the more that we answer that, I truly believe that we will begin to see some of the hope that we long for and that the world is desperate for. So, happy, hopeful, holy new year, my friends. I love you so very much, and amen.